Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 8. And let us look at God's word this morning. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in, in the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Peros, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men, of the sons of Pahathamalab, uh, Eliahoni, uh, the son of Zeruiah, and with him 200 men, of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men, of the sons of Adin, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men, of the sons of Alam, Jeshiah, the son of uh, Athaliah, and with him 70 men, of the sons of uh, Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michal, and with him 80 men, of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the sons of Jehiel, and with him 218 men, of the sons of Benai, Shalometh, the son of Josiphiah, and with him 160 men, of the sons of Babai, Zechariah, the son of Babai, and with him 28 men, of the sons of Asgad, Johanna, the son of Hakanah, and with him 110 men, of the sons of Adonikam, of those who came later, their names being Eliphalet, Jehu, and Shemaiah, and with him 60 men, of the sons of Bigvi, um, Uthai, and Zakur, and with them 70 men. I gather them to the river that runs to Abba, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, El Nathan, Jerib, El Nathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Jorib and El Nathan, and who were men of insight, and sent them to Idu, the leading man of the place of Kasaphiah, telling them what to say to Idu and his brothers and the temple servant at the place of Kasaphiah, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God, and by the hand of God, excuse me, and by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Malai, the sons of Levi, sons of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18, also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, and of the sons of Merari, and his kinsmen and their sons, 20, besides 20, 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Eva, um, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king the hand of our God 
is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out uh, to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God, that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel were present, uh, their present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver, and silver vessels were 200 talents, and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks, and, and two vessels of fine bright bronzes, precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from the ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of uh, Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, jo Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui, the whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls from all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the providence beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you, Lord, as we come this morning to your word to know that every part of it is inspired and, and is profitable for, for teaching, Lord, and for uh, rebuke and for training in righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would use your word this morning, God, in every way to encourage us as your people and, and to, uh, Lord, uh, foster the faith that you have given to us to strengthen it, Lord, that we might follow you all the days of our lives. We thank you, Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I'm sure as I was reading that text, uh, some of you who are expecting children were thinking, oh, shoot, I wish I had already picked out a name. There are so many great baby <laughs> names there in, in that passage. But, and anyway, maybe in another child that will happen. But, um, I don't know about you, but as, uh, as we've been going through the book of Ezra, it's been like a shot of spiritual adrenaline to my system. I just have to tell you, I have been pumped. As I have, uh, as we've been studying Ezra, it's been such an encouragement to my faith, and, and to see how God is at work at, 
reestablishing a right relationship with his people by reinstituting the temple worship at, at, at Jerusalem. And, and even to see, and this is what probably has been amazing to me, is to see that God has used secular, pagan, ruthless, wicked, evil kings to carry out his purposes. Uh, and uh, not only initially with the first group that returned, but even with this group that's returning with Ezra as well. And uh, last week, as we looked at chapter 7, and if you weren't here, I'm, I'm sorry, you'll have to go back and read chapter 7. But we saw how God worked in the heart of King Artaxerxes to provide a, a point man, a leader, if you would, Ezra, uh, to, who was an expert in the law, to lead God's people uh, back to Jerusalem. And then God not only raised up a point man, but the people themselves uh, to, to, to do the work of ministry that is there, and also uh, as well the possessions and the wealth that was necessary to, to complete the work. And, and God's providence and his provision was so overwhelming as you read chapter 7, you come to the end of chapter 7 and you're like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, the king said, look, whoever wants to go to Jerusalem, you can go. Oh, as, as if that's not enough? You know, it, uh, let me give you some money to take and to do the work of the Lord. Oh, and by the way, let me decree this, that you need to teach the Bible and people need to listen. And if they don't listen, there's going to be consequences, which could even be death if they don't listen and obey the word of the Lord. Oh, and, and if that's not enough, also, you guys don't have to pay any taxes or anything. And it just kept going on and on and on. You're thinking, seriously, this is amazing. And, you know, as you, as you read that, you, you just could think, what could possibly stop God's work amongst his people? I mean, why is it that the, the church is ever timid? Why are we ever afraid as we see that God is so awesome and that he is about building his kingdom and he will do it? We must never forget that. And yet, oftentimes, we struggle. And, and as I was thinking about that, I was just thinking about the New Testament. And then we look at this, and we see this in, in such tangible ways, and we're just sort of overwhelmed by that. But the reality is, is in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we have, given, we have been given much more than this. If you don't believe me, take your Bibles this afternoon and read Ephesians chapter 1. And to see how the Father has elected you and he has chosen you before the foundation of the world. And then he says, I'm going to give you everything you need in Jesus Christ to redeem you and make you a people for my own. And not only that, but I'm going to seal you because I know that you people are not very faithful. And if I left it up to you, you would turn your back on me in a second. But you know what? I'm going to seal you and I, I will complete the work that I've started in you. And, and you will be in heaven with me for all eternity. God has given us these great riches, and I don't know if we think about this. You know, someone sometimes when I hear Christians say, yeah, theology is not that important, I'm thinking, what? Theology is what tells us what's true. It says, this is who God is, and this is what he has done for you. Walk in this, brothers and sisters. And so, um, you know, but we forget that sometimes. And, and we might know that God is great, but we very much feel our own weakness, do we not? We know that God is almighty, and, and we even might know that we are precious in His sight, but oftentimes life seems so overwhelming, and our faith is tested oftentimes beyond what we think we can even bear. But the one thing that's beautiful about the Word of God 
is, is while it, it shares, like in Ezra chapter 7 or Ephesians chapter 1, this is the great riches that the Lord has given His people. The Bible also is very honest. And the Bible says, yeah, but we also have to walk in this. You know, and, and while God is great, oftentimes we are struggling. And, and we, are, we are having difficulties. Even though God has given us everything that we need, His great provision and His great promises and His great providence, uh, we still struggle with that. And that's what we're going to see in Ezra 8. Ezra 7 are these, are these great ways in which God has worked. And now in Ezra 8, the people actually have to live in the midst of what God has given them. And, and that's what we see. And so here they are getting ready to leave Babylonia with the orders from Artaxerxes. And he's given them all of this authority and these riches to take back to Jerusalem. But in the face of this, they are, they are seeing struggles of um, insurmountable proportions. And uh, they must face those things. Understanding that, yes, God is sovereign and invincible, but his people are not. That we are weak and we are needy and oh so helpless at times. And only as we draw closer to him and only as we rest in him and only as we live by faith, knowing that God provides everything we need and knowing that he keeps us safe, you know, that's what will strengthen our weak hearts, brothers and sisters, as we are drawn closer to our God and we walk in him. And so I want us to look at this, this new exodus, this fresh Exodus that's that's taking place uh, as the second wave of exiles come back to Jerusalem. And the first thing I want us to notice is God's people prepare for the task at hand. God's people prepare for the task at hand. You, it starts out with this with this genealogy. If you remember, the king said, "Whoever wants to go can go." So it's like Ezra said, "Hey, look, guys, if you want to go, just meet me down by the river." And we'll sort of assemble there, and then we'll take off from there, and we'll go to Jerusalem. Now, the text doesn't tell us that, but that's the sense you get from the text, that that was sort of the gathering place. And then you have Ezra, who's very careful, very precise, and he starts uh, recording who all the folks are that's going. And the list tells us a lot of things, but just a few things. It's, it's really the list of names of families who are returning to the Promised Land, and there's 12 families which makes us think of the 12 tribes, although we don't know for certain that each family is from a different tribe. Commentators, uh, that's just sort of an, an unknown to us. So we think of the 12 tribes, maybe the 12 disciples. Uh, but with the exception of uh, Joab in verse 9, we do know that all these families are found in the list of the original uh, returnees in Ezra chapter 2, verses 3 through 15. So in other words... The, the first group that went, these are actually the same relatives. These are relatives of those families that are now coming to work in the rebuilding uh, um, or of uh, God's covenant community and the worship of God through his temple. And so in one sense, uh, we're going to see in this second wave of exiles that are coming, there's going to be reuniting with their families. But the other thing that we see in this genealogy is that the numbers of the returnees of the second wave is much smaller than the first. Where the first wave was like 40 to 50,000 people, uh, we read here that the men that are numbered here are like 1,500. So probably with women and children, and they do mention the children and women and stuff in this text, so we know that they went along. There's probably five 
thousand people, roughly, that are, are returning to Jerusalem. Now, what we've learned from Ezra is that he is a scribe. He's one who's learned in the matters of the commandments of the Lord. So it's not surprising to us that before they take this four-month journey to Babylon, or excuse me, from Babylon to Jerusalem, uh, he begins to make sure that everything's in order, make sure that everything is happening according to the word of the Lord. And he goes to the camp and he begins to do a roll call and to see who all is there. And, and you see that those names listed. But one of the things that, that uh, we see is in verse 15 is surprisingly he found that there were none of the sons of Levi. Now, that's a big problem. We may not realize that. You know, if they were just going on a trip, they were just going to make a couple days journey for, for no reason whatsoever. It didn't matter if you have Levi's. But if you're going to go do the work in the temple of the Lord, you have to have Levi's. You have to have Levites that will come and to work in the temple. They were essential. Uh, they carried out actually most of the work in the temple. Their job was to assist the priest uh, in the, the worship um, sacrifices and everything. It's a lot like today in the church where you have deacons who work with the elders in the church to carry out the ministry of the church and to oversee that, that ministry. And uh, that's what these Levites did. And, and yet it, it seems like the Levites in the post-exilic days weren't jumping at the opportunity to minister in the temple because like I said, the king said whoever wants to go can go and none chose to go. In the first wave, out of like 42,000 plus people, 341 of them were Levites. But in this case, there were none that were Levites. Well, Ezra didn't leave it at that. He sent some men back uh, to find Levites and to encourage them to come. And they did come. 48, as a matter of fact, Levites returned. But also, 220 men who were sort of like assistants to the Levites came. Men who could also work in, in the temple ministry as well. And, and it's interesting that, that Ezra takes the time to mention the names of each one of these Levites. And, and, or to, to mention some of the names. Just to let us know that everyone's work in the kingdom is important. It doesn't matter how big or how small the ministry is that you do, uh, it is important and it brings great joy to the Lord. As a matter of fact, we read in the New Testament, although, and although it's clearly uh, uh, explained in the Old Testament, that God gives gifts to his people to use in his ministry. I just was thinking this morning about, uh, here again, starting the, the nursery ministry, and I remember... Uh, and uh, I can't remember if it's college or seminary, whatever, one of my professors stood up and he said, you know, he goes, a lot of people don't want to work in the nursery because that's just child care. He said, but that's not true. He said, do you know where officer training starts in the church? He goes, it starts in the nursery. He goes, it starts as nursery workers lovingly take the time to not only care for the children, but to read them books and interact with them and teach them to interact with each other and understand what the church is about. And, and God uses and works through those kids oftentimes in that ministry, even though we don't think it's important. Where do you think godly mothers and fathers come from? 
that starts out in the ministry. Where do godly men and women come from? That starts out in the ministry. And we think oftentimes of those ministries as, eh, okay, if we can't get anybody else to do it, or if we can rustle people into doing that. But it's a great privilege to use our gifts and abilities. Honestly, if I didn't have to preach, I would be in the nursery. I love the nursery. I think it's great. But uh, that's what the Lord does. Okay, so this, that's the first point. The second point is that preparation. But now God's people pray and they fast. In verses 21 through 23. Uh, we see that as they're getting ready to leave, they also realize that they're sort of in a desperate position. Uh, the, the leaders find themselves sort of in a tricky spot. And Ezra describes it in verse 22. He said, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So here's God's people preparing to embark on a four-month trip. Okay, and it's, it's in the... It's in the Middle East, it's in the summer, it's hot. They're going to be going through the desert, they're going to be going up hills, they're going to be going down into valleys, and, uh, and, and you know, they, it's not like a small band of people. You're talking about thousands of people who were going on this. In, in addition, you know, part of that being women, part of it being children, and trying to keep everybody together. And not only that, but they also have this wealth with them. And if you look at verse 25, it sort of explains more about this wealth. Now, I just want to take one little bit and piece to sort of give you an idea of how much wealth they were taking with them. They were taking 650 talents of silver. Doesn't that just overwhelm you? Of course it doesn't. You have no idea what I'm talking about when I say 650 talents of silver. But let me uh, explain it this way. It's, if, I, if my calculations are correct, it's about 48,620 pounds of silver. Now, if you're a coin collector and you collect silver coins, you can imagine that's a lot of silver. Let me put it this way. It's about just a little over 22 metric tons of silver. It's about $17,719,000 worth of silver. Are you getting the picture? Um, I, I heard one pastor describe it this way. He said, the largest mammal in the world is the African elephant, okay, that, that weighs roughly 3.23 metric tons. He said, so 750 talents of silver would be like five to seven African elephants worth of silver that they're transporting. And that's just one piece. They also have gold. They also have vessels that they're taking as well and so you can imagine that as this group of people are going through the desert they're moving slow right they got kids you know you, you just try to get your kids to church and you're struggling can you imagine trying to get them four months across the desert to another country with all this wealth i mean it's just like you have a target written on your back like come rob me steal from me i'm an easy target so you can understand why Ezra would be concerned. I know as a, as a pastor, I, I can understand and I feel the weight of, of concern that I would have if this was you, if this was my congregation that was seeking to go across there. Would you be okay? I mean, yes, the, 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 the treasure, God's treasure is important, 
but it, but it's nothing. And I would hate for you to they take all the money they want. I don't care, but I just would want to make sure that the people are okay. And so you could you could understand how Ezra could even have sleepless nights. I mean, we don't know that 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 he did, but some people you know would sort of hypothesize that this would have to weigh heavily upon him. And this may be what happened, but that's not how the text describes Ezra. It doesn't say that he's a man that he couldn't sleep at night, but instead it describes Ezra as praying and fasting. Look at verse 21 and verse 23. That he called the people to fast and to pray. You know, as he feels the weight of this impossible task before him, um, he fasts and he prays. That's his first instinct. And that's what he calls the people to do. Uh, uh, to humble themselves before God and to seek Him in all their ways, verse 21. And, and in particular in verse 21, we see that Ezra was seeking the Lord for protection against the enemy uh, that they would surely meet on the road to Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to guess that the only word more unpopular then the word submission in the church is the word fasting, right? You know, what do you think of when you think of fasting? You're like, oh, wow, great, Pastor Rick. You're going to, like, starve us to death, right? We just got to do this grueling thing. I mean, you think about it. We live in a culture, do we not, that, that is self-promoting, self-sufficient, and self-indulgent. It's almost like the total opposite of fasting, right? You know, in our culture, who wants to hear humble yourself in prayer and deny yourself what you desire food in order to seek the face of God that's not really where our culture is um, but it's very contrary to the age in which we live and unfortunately I hate to say this but it's also contrary to the spirit that we see in many churches as well um, you know you hear churches all the time about how we need to do this for God and we need to do that for God and, and we need to further God's kingdom as if we're doing something that God himself cannot do. And so humility is not always even a characteristic of, of Christ's bride, unfortunately. And yet fasting is that sense of coming before the Lord and, and humbling ourselves before God and showing him our neediness to say, Lord, I cannot do this. And brothers, you heard for this morning from Matt, we have sort of that kind of opportunity before us with this building. I'll, I'll talk to you more about that later. But there, there's that sense in which it's just overwhelming. And all we can do is come to the Lord and pray and to fast. You know, often what we want the least is what we need the most. And that's true when it comes to a sense of fasting and praying. Um, and so Ezra, in this desperate hour, that's exactly what he does. He, he fasts. And not just him, and not just the leaders, but he calls the people to do that. So they take a couple of days right there at the river before they even start out, and they just seek the Lord's face. And they fast and they pray. You see, one of the, the greatest threats of, of their mission would have been pride. You know, you could have very easily skipped verses 21 through 24. You could have easily said, Ezra went and got the priest, and then they got on the road, and they, they took the, the gold and the silver and all the other vessels to Jerusalem. But that's not what he did. It very pointedly says that they humbled themselves. And see, we need to remember that, because one of the greatest threats to the Christian life, brothers and sisters, is pride. 
one of the greatest threats to your Christian life, to my Christian life, is pride. One of the greatest threats to our church is when we are proud. Let us never stand up and say, well, we're reformed. And look down our nose upon others like we are something great. Because we are nothing apart from Jesus Christ. Just like the brothers that we might look down our nose upon, there's nothing apart from Jesus Christ. And so, um, you know, when we think about Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, that's what wrecked Adam and Eve was pride. They wanted to be like God. And so they acted in their pride. And so pride plagues the church. Um, but heartfelt prayer and fasting is a remedy for pride. Now I know we can make an idol out of anything. God can give us the most holy and righteous thing and we can turn around and we can make it an idol. And we can become proud that we're humble, right? That's just how, what we do as Christians. You know, so we've got to be careful not to do that. But if we come to the Lord and we approach Him with an overwhelming sense of our need and we pray and we fast, then God answers those prayers. And that's what we read in verse 23, that the Lord answered the prayers of the people. And so here's Ezra telling the king in verse 22 that, you know, the hand of the Lord could take care of us, you know. And, and now he has to put his money where his mouth is. He's like, I can't really go back to the king and, 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 and ask for help because I've already told him that God could take care of us. You know, and I, and I wonder how often we as Christians speak or we, we sing about the almighty power of God in our hymns and our songs. But then when life presses in around us, do we send a consistent message to those around us like Ezra did when he said, we will trust the Lord. Now, faith is not fatalistic, okay? I want you to understand that. Faith doesn't say, well, God's sovereign, and so therefore there's nothing that I need to do. In other words, the sovereignty of God doesn't hinder the Christian to pray boldly. But I oftentimes see Christians that struggle with that. They start praying, and they start praying boldly about things, and then they, you can see them sort of back off, like, ooh, maybe I shouldn't pray that. Maybe that's not God's will. Maybe that's not what God wants. And, and so we oftentimes approach God with, with timidity. But the reality is, such, God's sovereignty should enhance and encourage us to pray boldly. Uh, I don't say, we should not say, I trust God so much that there's no reason to pray. Actually, we should say, I trust God so much that I must pray. And it's always a good time to pray. And sometimes it's good to fast as well. And that's what Ezra does at the river. The third point, God's people guarding these precious things in verses 24 through 34. So Ezra sets aside 12 priests, possibly representing the 12 tribes, we don't know. But in 25 and 26, and he goes, and I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels and the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel were present had offered, and I weighed out into their hands. So he's saying, in essence, I've given this to you guys. You're responsible for this. And, and anybody who's ever been a banker can, can appreciate this, okay? You know, whenever an armored car company has uh, a shipment of cash, they're responsible for that. Those guards are, have to give an account that they have received that much cash, and they are taking it to the bank, 
and then they're going to give it to the bank and then the banker has to sign off saying I received this much money and that's really what we're seeing here that these priests are given that responsibility that they're going to have to care and to watch over it and, and it's in this way that Ezra was making sure that nothing got lost and that's what these priests do and we read in verses 28 and 29 where it says, And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. Now, remember, we're talking about, you know, like five to seven African elephants' weight of silver alone not counting the gold and the other things. And that's what they're responsible for. But the priests moved this vast treasury across the desert, up the hills, down in the valleys, all the way across. And, and now you see why Ezra is praying for safety. And then we read in verse 30, So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of God. And then verses 31 and 32 records the outcome. Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way, and we came to Jerusalem. You see, God protected them from any devices of men to steal this. And notice that nothing was lost. Not one was lost along the way. And verse 34 sums it up so well. So the whole was counted and weighed and the weight of everything was recorded in other words they got everything there safely which brings us to our last point you see God's people respond to his salvation you see them respond to his protection in verses uh, 35 and 36 but but before you get there if you look at verse 32 you see that they got back to Jerusalem and they gathered for three days that's very similar to verse 15, that when they got to the river for three days, they gathered, and they, they didn't do anything. And, and we don't know what exactly they did when they got to Jerusalem for three days. Maybe they rusted. Maybe Ezra did another roll call to check on everybody, maybe to make sure that all the, the wealth was there. I don't know. But, but how appropriate that they would end their journey the same way that they began. And, and regardless... This was a cause for them to worship the Lord for his provision and watching over them and keeping them safely and bringing them to Jerusalem where they could do the ministry that God had called them to do, that he had preserved them along this treacherous path and so they could celebrate. Now, there's three things that occurred around these returnees' arrival. First, the priests and the Levites delivered the offering to the temple. Second, the returned exiles offered burnt offerings to the Lord and worshiped to him. But finally, they delivered the king's decree to the satraps and the, the governors of the providence in verse 36. And they did that to these Persians. And, and the Lord moved in their hearts to where they received this, and God's plan was continually carried out. It wasn't like these satraps and governors said, are you sure this came from the king? They received that. And you just see God continue to build his kingdom for God to continue to carry out his plan. Brothers and sisters, why do we worry in the church? Why are we so timid in the church? Why do we act as if God cannot do something great? 
As if everything that we do has to depend upon us. Oh, I'm so excited about this opportunity that we have before us, brothers and sisters, with this building, because this is something we can't do. It's something that will humble us to, to, to our very needs. And though God's people were helpless people, God protected them and nothing was lost. <coughs> Everything was recorded and accounted for. And as Ezra said in verse 22, the hand of our God is good on all who seek Him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, child of God? That God's hand is good on all those who seek Him. That His hand is for you. And, and that's what Ezra did when he prayed. That's what Ezra did when he fasted. He understood that God was good and that he could take his needs to the Lord and he could pray and that God would answer them. That, brothers and sisters, is a big step of faith to take millions and millions of dollars and precious gold across the desert and trust that the Lord was going to get it there safely when you were unarmed and you didn't have any armed guards. Not even a concealed carry in the whole group, you know? And yet they knew that the Lord would provide for them because God is the protector of his people. And because of that, none of his people will be lost. Have you ever thought about what's truly precious in the sight of God? Think about that. What is precious, most precious in the sight of God? Is it gold? Is it silver? Is it the, the precious, other precious metals or, or the vessels in the temple? No. Did you know that the streets in heaven are made of gold? So gold's like nothing. I mean, how many people down here clamor to, to, to gather and to collect uh, asphalt, right? <laughs> you know, gold is nothing. Rather, in heaven, God's saints are those who are precious in his sight. They are holy unto the Lord. And that's what we see in Ezra chapter 8, that ultimately God's people are his treasured possession. They are the ones that he loves and he cares for. And this picture of the Exodus is uh, through the wilderness is not a new story. We've obviously read that before, right? But, but it happened to Israel, but it will happen again in the future when there will be one who will come through the wilderness, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a greater than Ezra, who would bear the burden of his people to save the people for himself, one who would pray and one who would fast for his people, that they would be saved and they would be guarded and they would be protected. One who would, um, would do what no other Israelite would do, that he would perfectly obey the word of God. One who would not have to sacrifice on behalf of himself, but he would become a sacrifice for the sin of others. One who, unlike Israel or Ezra, was not spared from harm. But Jesus was harmed and even died that he might deliver us uh, from our sins. Beloved, because you are precious in the sight of God, God has not spared his own son. As a matter of fact, beloved, you are so precious in the sight of Jesus that he did not spare himself, but he freely offered himself for you. 
Why? Why would God do that? Why would Christ do that? Because you are precious. More precious than silver or gold. Do you know what the Bible says about you if you are his child here this morning? That your names are recorded in the book of life. And not only that, the Bible says that none of you will be lost. Not even a single one. God will not lose that which is precious to him. So let's not forget that, brothers and sisters, as we continue to live our lives and, 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 and walk through the desert of this world. As we go down into the valleys and we go up in the hills and down in the valleys again and we feel the weight of the trials and, and the difficulties of this life, never for, let us never forget that God is always there and he was always there to protect us because God always protects that which is holy and precious to him. So let us respond to him, brothers and sisters, with fasting and with prayer as we walk the Christian life humbly trusting and submitting to him knowing that we are precious in his sight amen? amen let's bow our heads as we just take a few moments to meditate upon the lord and just just respond to him quietly in prayer and uh, from the word that you have heard this morning Jesus, we want to thank you so much for your gracious mercy that you have shown to your people within the church. Now, Lord, we pray that we would come to understand truly how precious we are in your sight. Lord, forgive us for our self-sufficiency and, and, and just the, the wicked way in which we have sought to, to try to be the, the, the ruler of our own lives. Oh, Lord, help us to trust you whether it be in the sins that we're struggling with, Lord, whether it be in the temptations that are before us, Lord, if, if it's the trials that we're in the midst of, Lord, maybe it's the blessings that we're in the midst of and we're tempted to forget you. Oh, Lord, draw our focus to you and to be remembered that we are valuable because we are made in your sight. But Lord, we know that you have more. You have others that you want to bring into your church, into your kingdom, and we pray Lord, for those that may hear my voice this morning that don't know you, that they would trust you to know that you are a God that not only has loved them, but you have died, that they might know you, that they might be forgiven of their sins. And while the world would tell them, you can never be forgiven. You have done too much. You are too wicked. May they know, Lord, that there is none too wicked for your grace. And may they bow their knee before you and trust you as our Lord and Savior, turning from their sin and walking in obedience to you. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.